Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to take them out and turn them on and scroll down to Luke chapter 11. Pastor Vance told me how sophisticated you guys are out here on the West Coast. And so uh, get your Bibles out and go to Luke chapter 11, if you will. I um, want to, just as you're doing that, tell you how honored I am to be here. I, uh, I, this is the second time I've been out here. Um, this has to be um, uh, one of the greatest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, your spirit of... Your spirit of worship, your multicultural diversity, your um, focus on evangelism, the spirit of prayer, the spirit of faith that is here, my soul is just enriched um, every single time that not only I spend any time with your pastor, Vance, who is one of my greatest friends and I think greatest leaders in our country, but also um, just be here being in your presence. It is an enrichment to, um, to my soul. You're being here on the front, um, the, the frontier areas and your, and your devotion to sending. I think I told you this the last time that I was here, but the church that I pastor in the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina um, is uh, right in the middle of um, just, a, it's a college town, essentially. It's a state capital, but it's a college town within 50 miles of our church or 120 20,000 college students uh, and a large portion of those who come on the weekend uh, to our church is our college students, uh, which I told you means a couple of things about us. Uh, number one, we are dirt poor as a congregation. Uh, people look at the number of people that come to our church and then our budget, and it just, it's embarrassing. Uh, but they, uh, you know, college students, they just don't, whether, no matter what part of the country they live in, they don't bring money with them. Uh, when college students started to come to our church, you know, they, they, uh, they all just kind of, it was like five came one week and then 500 the next, because they kind of travel in, in herds. They came out, showed up in three cars. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, in like the space of like two weeks, our attendance tripled and our weekly giving went up $13.48. Uh, one of my favorite members as a pastor is uh, in between two of our services, an usher comes into my green room area and he's got an offering bucket and in it is a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit from a college student. A little note on it that says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I unto you. And, so uh, we are, are not a rich congregation, but we have a lot of potential missionaries. Uh, and so we uh, try to train them all that, hey, you got to get a job somewhere. Why not get a job in a place where God is doing something strategic? And God has given us a vision as a church of planting a thousand churches um, in our generation. And uh, your pastor and your church have been uh, not only a big inspiration, but also a big help in understanding what that looks like and the places and the parts of the country and the world for us to, to focus on. And so please understand that I am deeply, deeply grateful um, for a chance uh, not to only be here to hopefully bless and minister to you, but to um, just express my love and, and uh, friendship and uh, devotion to you and your church. Um, so good. I hope you've had time by now to find Luke chapter 11 um, in your Bible. If not, just quietly sit there and focus on the screen. I'll put it up here for you as well. I want to talk with you guys um, this morning about why 
we pray. Why we pray. You know, prayer is one of those things that we know we ought to do and that we ought to do more of, but no matter how many sermons we hear on it or how many resolutions we make that we're going to pray more, we don't really change. If we're honest, theologian D.A. Carson says that if you really want to embarrass the average Christian, just ask him or her to tell you about their prayer life. You know, we talk good about Bible study. Sometimes we even talk well about evangelism, but most Christians have a, if I could just be really blunt, a pathetically embarrassing prayer life. Most of us would say it's a problem with our self-discipline. We don't pray enough for the same reason we don't work out enough or uh, for the same reason we don't read enough books or that we you know, eat too many desserts and not enough alfalfa sprouts. It's just, it's a problem with our self-discipline. And sometimes, if you're honest, you're just not sure how, how much good prayer actually does. I, I know we're not supposed to admit this in church, but sometimes you pray and things happen. But sometimes you pray and they don't. And sometimes you forget to pray, and the thing that you should have prayed for turns out that it happens anyway, and so you're just not sure how much difference it actually makes. Now, come on now, don't look at me like that, like you guys don't ever have these questions. You're so spiritual out here in Las Vegas that you never (laughs) think about these questions of faith. I know that it's a deal. That's why you struggle to pray, and why when you do pray, often, if you're honest, it feels more like duty and drudgery because you're just not sure what good it does. Ultimately, effective prayer grows out of understanding the character of Jesus. When you really see who Jesus is and who you are without him, then prayer begins to happen very naturally. Think of it kind of like this. There are two ways that you can keep a balloon afloat, right? One way is if you just blow up a balloon with your breath, the only way to keep it suspended in the air is you got to keep you got to keep smacking it, right? That's the one way to keep it, keep it up. Uh, my, my oldest daughter, when she was four years old, had a fascination with balloons. And so for her four, fourth birthday, I spent an entire afternoon blowing up balloons to cover the entire kitchen area where we're going to have the party, like three feet deep in balloons. I mean, it was a major feat. Um, she walked in, she picked up one of the balloons, she held it and dropped it and says, what's wrong with these balloons? You know, she likes the ones at the restaurant that float and everything. So I was like, oh, it's like a game. We, these balloons, we can play a party game to try to who keep it up, you know, the longest. But she, of course, didn't buy that. She just thought they were, were lame. Um, there's another way that you can keep a balloon afloat besides hitting it. You can just fill it with helium, and then it just soars on its own with no, you know, external compulsion required. Seems like a lot of times what we need when it comes to prayer is we need somebody up here once or twice a year, Pastor Vance, or he brings in somebody like me, and that's what our job is. We just smack you real good, right? We just like, you got to pray more, and you're, you, you really do. You're like, oh, it hurts, but man, he's so right. I got to pray more, and so you put it down, and man, you make a resolution, and it works for three, four weeks, right? And then you kind of come back down, and we got to preach it again. There is another way for you to begin to pray with no external compulsion required. And that is for you to get a very clear picture of who Jesus is and who you are. So it is no, it is no shock that when Jesus was going to teach his disciples to pray, he didn't start with a discussion on self-discipline. He didn't start with a list of resolutions. He didn't start with an accountability partner. He started with a depiction of who he is. Watch this, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. I mean, first of all, just notice how interesting it is that when they want to be schooled by Jesus, they don't say, teach me to preach, teach me to do miracles, teach me how to win people to Christ. They, somehow they recognize that the power in all of those things was in how Jesus prayed. So they're like, teach us to do that, and then all the other stuff will happen. So verse 5, Jesus then tells them this parable. 
Luke chapter 11, verse 5. Here we go. And he said to them, which of you is a friend who will go to him at midnight? Say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. But a friend of mine, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. A few quick details about this story to help it make it more, help it make more sense. First, in a country without electricity, midnight is really the middle of the night. It's not like out here in Las Vegas where people don't go to bed until 4 a.m. Um, this morning, I got up really early. I went to breakfast at this little cafe um, beside the casino in my hotel. And the hostess asked me when I walked in, she's like, how's your day going? And I thought, how's it going? It just started. <laughs> but I guess you could not assume that in Vegas after I finished breakfast. I was standing next to a guy waiting on the elevator. We both had cups of coffee. He looks at me and he says, are you starting your day or are you finishing it? I said, finishing it? It's 6.45 in the morning. He said, well, I'm just finishing mine. Um, Who finishes their day at 6.45 in the morning? People in Las Vegas finish their day at 6.45. For this guy, however, middle of the night, this guy in this story, middle of the night means middle of the night. By midnight, this guy has been in bed and asleep for about four hours. He is well into the REM stage. Right? So then notice that he's in bed with his children. You see, in those days, everybody lived in kind of a one-room house, so there was one bed area. Everybody slept in the same area. So in other words, for him, he's literally in bed with his children. For him to get up, he's going to have to wake up everybody in the house. Thirdly, notice that the man making the request doesn't have an emergency. He's not saying, hey, my wife has fallen and she's bleeding out of the ears. Come and, and help me take care of her. He's like, hey, I, I got some guest tarts that showed up, I mean, some guests that showed up unexpectedly and I don't have enough pop tarts for them. Um, so I need to borrow some from you. Finally, the request is exorbitant. In those days, bread loaves were huge. One loaf would have been sufficient. This guy asked for three. For three. So, so and this is Vegas level hospitality that he is asking for. Verse eight. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, some translations say boldness or shamelessness, because of that he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Jesus says the man gives him what he asked for, not because he's his friend. In fact, after this event, he may not be his friend any longer. He gives the bread to him because of his boldness. And his persistence in asking, Jesus says, verse 9, and I tell you then, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to him it will be open. This whole analogy of knocking reinforces the idea of persistence. When you knock on somebody's door, you don't just knock once. Right? Somebody, if, I, if in the middle of the night I hear you know, that right there, I don't assume somebody's knocking on the door. I assume one of my kids has fallen out of the bunk bed, and, and that's the thud hitting the floor. The thing about a knock is that you knock repeatedly. That's what Jesus is telling us to pray like. He goes on, verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. And if you parents ever do that, your kid asks you for a chicken nugget, and you're like, no, I got no chicken nuggets, but here's a cobra that you can, you know, eat. <laughs> of course not, he says. Or if he asks him for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil... If you who are evil know how to good, good, good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, there's some really important stuff in there that we're going to come back to, but real quick, um, scroll down to Luke chapter 18, because Luke is going to record essentially the same teaching twice. And that's really good, I'm going to be honest, because otherwise I might be tempted to write off the first parable as kind of a fluke, because the stuff that he is teaching about prayer is so counterintuitive Almost, hear me charitably, 
almost blasphemous what Jesus is teaching here. Luke chapter 18, verse 1, and so he told them another parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, and a certain man, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, the man refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Then Jesus says, unbelievably, this is like praying to God. Now, I am sure glad that Jesus told this parable and not Pastor Vance. I mean, first, comparing God to a cranky, old, unjust judge, who but Jesus could get away with that analogy? And wearing God down through persistent, annoying asking? The point here, of course, is not to compare God to an unjust judge, but to contrast him with one. If even an unrighteous, selfish judge would grant answers as a result of persistent asking, will not God, who cares about us like a tender father, Jesus says, give us what we ask when we come to him? The point of these parables is to teach us to pray with four characteristics that define our prayer. Here they are, if you're taking notes. Number one, persistently. To pray persistently. I want to address something that people in churches like yours and mine seem to struggle with, sometimes secretly. And I referred to it at the beginning, and that is whether or not prayer actually changes things. You see, there's a statement that I hear people make, and it sounds so spiritual. Now, you can get it on a coffee cup if you go to your local Christian bookstore. Prayer doesn't change the situation. Prayer changes you. C.S. Lewis, in a, well, in a, in a movie about C.S. Lewis called Shadowlands, there's a scene where he gets married to Joy Davidman, his wife that he, he married when he was in his 50s. And um, as they're spending their first night together, he drops down um, on his knees beside the bed to do what evidently he does every night to pray. And Joy Davidman, who's a little untraditional of a Christian, says, you actually pray every night? Is that, do you actually feel like prayer changes things? And C.S. Lewis says, well, no, prayer doesn't actually change things, but what prayer does is it changes me. Again, it sounds so spiritual, but it's not true. Prayer does change you, but passages like this one shows you that prayer also changes the situation. In this story, the woman asked and asked again and again, and only after dozens of requests did she finally get the answer. Here is my question. If it was God's will, why didn't God just say yes the first time? I don't know. But this passage shows you that some outcomes are dependent on our prayers, and not just prayer, but persistent, bold prayer. I mean, did you catch that in there? I don't know. He could have said it more clearly. Chapter 11, verse 8, because of his impudence. Not in spite of, because of it. Chapter 18, verse 5, because of her continual coming, the answer was given. Luke 11, verse 9, does not say, ask, and you will be changed in the asking. Seek, and the journey will make you different. Knock, and your heart will be transformed just by asking the question. He says, knock, and if nobody answered, God's probably hiding under the, the, the table in the kitchen. He doesn't want you to know he's so. So keep knocking, and knock louder, and hit repeatedly until somebody has to come to the door. Y'all, the early church got this. Acts 11 says that when Peter was being held as prisoner, says they made earnest prayer. They prayed all night for the release of Peter. They didn't just mention it once and then flip on Sports Center and leave it to the will of God. Paul got this. In at least one place, he literally had to be told to stop asking for something. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 
He's talking about God delivering him from this thing. And a message has to come down from heaven where God says, Paul, cut it out. My answer to this one is no, we're not yet. So stop bothering me about this. God has a greater plan. Or in one of my favorite scenes in the Old Testament, Exodus 17, you know the story when, when, when Israel's out doing battle, you got Moses with his hands up symbolizing prayer. And when his hands are lifted, that's when they're winning the battle. And the moment he quits, puts his hands down and he quits praying, they start losing the battle, right? Which makes you wonder what would have happened if he just started to do jumping jacks or something, you know, like just how it would have gone. But the picture is very clear. As you pray, God gives the victory. It's a very graphic illustration. John Wesley, who oversaw the um, awakening, great awakening here in our country, was so convinced of this that he said, I am convinced now that God does nothing on earth except an answer to prayer. That is clearly an overstatement, but what he was getting at was the idea is that prayer is the means by which God enacts his intentions on earth. I've heard it described like a laser beam. A laser beam works when you compound light waves on top of each other. So when you have a light wave going this way, if you do it the opposite way, they'll cancel each other out. But when you stack them up going the same direction, that beam of light takes on such intensity that it can cut through steel. What prayer is, is adding the wave of your faith to the wave of God's expressed intention, and the result is the release of the laser beam of his power. And the exact way that this all works together with God's sovereignty over all things, I don't quite understand. But it does. I know the Bible tells me that God knows the end from the beginning, that he is working unstoppably toward his pre-appointed ends, but I also know that scripture says that our prayers change situations in front of us. How it works together with God's sovereignty, I do not know. That it works, I do. In fact, it reminds me of the words of a guy named A.A. Hodge, who was one of the old Princeton theologians. Okay, he's a Calvinist, which means he believes, you know, God has determined things from the beginning. Here's what A.A. Hodge said. Does God know that, he said it's like this, think of it like this. Does God know the day that you'll die? The church? Yes, he does. Has he appointed that day? Yes, he has. Can you do anything to change that day? No. Then why do you eat? (laughs) To live. What happens if you don't eat? You die. Then if you don't eat and die, here's the question. Would that be the day that God had preordained, preappointed for you to die? Here's his answer. Quit asking stupid questions and just <laughs> Because eating, eating is the preordained way that God has appointed for living. Prayer is the preordained way that God has appointed to get his work done on earth and to enact his will. This passage teaches us, secondly, that we should pray, number two, desperately. Both of the characters in this story are desperate. The man in this story is out of options. The woman is out of options. She's helpless without the intervention of the judge. One of the things that keeps us from praying is the subtle belief that we are not absolutely dependent on the mercy of God to get things done. As Americans, we are the can-do people. We are a people who assume that with enough time and energy, we can figure out the solution to anything. And that's good. Let's build the Hoover Dam. Why not? It's the largest thing that's ever been built of its kind. We can do that. We got books for dummies on every possible subject. And I love them. I own a number of them. But the idea is that if we can just figure out the technique, we can become capable of whatever we need to become capable of. I've approached parenting that way. I I have read, honestly, about every possible book there is on Christian parenting. 
the idea that I, I kind of have in the back of my mind is if I can just figure this parenting thing out, then I will be able to guarantee that my kids turn out right. One of my favorite, new favorite authors, a lady named Elise Fitzpatrick, she's got a great book on parenting called Give Them Grace. She asked this question. She says, how many books are there on parenting written by Christ's followers that subtly or overtly guarantee, communicate that you can guarantee success in parenting if you just follow these biblical principles? She points out that God was a perfect parent and a third of the angels and the only two human beings he directly created rebelled against him. And she's like, do you really feel like you're going to be able to out-technique God? She says, the really dangerous problem with this kind of communication, however, is implying that there's a foolproof way of parenting because it keeps us from the one thing we most need as parents, and that is to cast ourselves down at the feet of Jesus, looking to God and his mercy to be the intervention in our children's lives. She brings up this passage in 1 Peter 5, it's verse 6, where Peter says, humble yourselves in prayer under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Cast all your anxieties on him for he cares for you. Who does the exalting? God does. He says in, the, in that day, Peter says, it's not that you're going to cast yourself on your philosophy of ministry. You're not going to cast yourself on anything that you've done. You're just going to lay it all down and say, God, I have no other hope except for your mercy. And then anything that teaches you to go around God's mercy because you can now accomplish it in a technique is something that while it may look biblical on the surface is actually keeping you from the one thing that you most need, the mercy of Jesus. My hope for my kids is not in my parenting skill, not even skills that I have learned from the Bible. My hope is in the grace of God who will himself raise them up at the right time. Amen. No technique. No skill, not even biblical skill, nothing of the flesh is sufficient for us to lean our weight upon. My hope for my marriage is not in good Christian marriage techniques and relationships, as important as those are. At the end of the day, my hope is in God's grace, not my ability to master biblical principles. Our hope for success and mission lies not in a superior strategy or a superior leader. Our hope is entirely in God's grace. I think that God teaches that to me multiple times in the 14 years I've been a pastor by the way that he blesses things at our church. I know it goes along with this divine sense of humor that he has because I will, man, several times I will preach, some, I'll get up and I'll preach, and I feel like I just preach the paint off the walls. I feel like it's the greatest sermon I have ever preached in my life. I feel like if Satan and the demons were here, they would have gotten saved if they'd have heard that sermon right there. <laughs> and I'm telling you, after just dropping what I feel like as a gospel bomb, nothing. I mean, not the, the least bit of response. And then like three weeks later, I'll get up and I'll preach something that is just embarrassing. I mean, I'll just kind of stumble out and just sort of verbal vomit everywhere. And when I get done, I'm like, not only did nobody get saved, God might have revoked my salvation um, after <laughs> preaching that kind of mess. And inevitably, that is the week that when we give time for response, there is a line of people or people lined up to talk to me saying, man, God has really used you in my life today. And I'm like, I don't see how in the world he did that. Um, because I know that in his divine understanding, in God's wisdom, God just takes opportunities from time to time to remind you that salvation belongs to him and not to you. And that's why Paul said he would glory in his weaknesses because it is in his weaknesses that strength was perfected. You see, listen, if dependence is the objective, then weakness becomes an advantage. So God will take weaknesses in your life and he will expose them and he will exploit them because those are the places where you are most likely to desperately depend on the grace of God to humble you and then to lift you up and to establish you. 
And so if you get that, you will pray desperately. Thirdly, we must pray. We must pray, number three, boldly. Boldly, these two stories that Jesus told are comedic for their hyperbole. As I pointed out, God is not like an unjust judge, and we're not like an annoying old widow to him. The judge that we approach is not one who neither loves justice nor us. No, 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 the one that we approach is a father who cares so much about us that he gave himself to satisfy the demands of justice so that he could give us grace. She approached as a stranger. We come as beloved children. She had no right to claim in court. We have the blood of Jesus. We don't approach a neighbor who is asleep during our hour of need. We pray to a father who saw us coming a far way off and stripped off his robe and ran from heaven to rescue us, who says we are so precious to him that not a single hair falls from our head without his knowledge. He didn't just give us loaves of bread from his cupboard. He gave us the bread of his own torn flesh so that we could feast on it for eternity. And he says, if you understand that, you will pray boldly, impudently, like children. You see, you, you know who approaches you naturally this way, impudently? It is your children if you have them. There are from time to time, as a parent, I will open my eyes. This happened actually last night at 3 a.m. in the morning. And there's just two little eyes. Just look at me right there. I want some water. If anybody else did that, any of you, Pastor Vance... It would be, at best, awkward, right? I mean, just like, hey, I need some water, right? Or, you know, it would be, you know, I would like, it would just be a very bad confrontation. Somebody would get hurt. <laughs> with my kids, with my, with my kid last night, I said what every good father would say. Your mom is right on the other side of the bed. So <laughs> you can talk to her. I mean, y'all, even if it were my wife, even if it were my wife who would wake me up at 3 a.m., I wouldn't call the police, but I would be like, well, get it yourself. <laughs> With my kids, I get up. I get up, and I'm like, all right, let me get you some water. That's how God tells us to approach him. We're like children who welcome or welcome right in their daddy's bedroom at whatever hour in the night with whatever need that we have, whether it's urgent or not, whether it's exorbitant or not. If you look at that comparison I pointed out in Luke 11:13, 13, Jesus says, if you who are evil... Love to give good gifts to your children. That's a, that's, a, that's a big old nasty word, isn't it? Evil. Why did Jesus, ask this, why did Jesus choose that moment to tell you that you were evil? Is that just like a gratuitous insult about your depravity? Oh yeah, by the way, you're evil. No, he's, the reason he, he uses that word there is because most of us with our kids is when we feel the most loving. That's when I'm the most compassionate, the most loving. My kid, that's when I'm at my best. And he says, hey, even you at your very best with the people you love most compared to me is evil. If you are so tender to respond to your kids that way, why don't you think about the heavenly perfect father, what his love for his children would be like, and think about how he will respond to you. One of the things that the Bible can't seem to present enough of is the tenderness and compassion of Jesus and the greatness of his grace toward us. It just tells these stories. It just kind of like, it's hard to get your mind around. Now, you're familiar with them. In you know, Luke chapter 8, there's a story of a woman who has this issue of blood, and she's had it for 12 years, which makes her ceremonially unclean. And as Jesus is making his way through the crowd, by the way, not just out, you know, just, you know, having a, a, a joy wall. He's just making his way through the crowd because he's got to go raise somebody from the dead. And as he's making his way there, she comes up behind him because she thinks, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, then he's going to heal me. 
And so as he goes by, she reaches out her hand and, 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 and touches the impudence of that. She is unclean. If an unclean person touches a clean person, it's going to make the unclean one, make the clean one unclean. She reaches out and touches, and then all of a sudden Jesus stops, and he turns around. And if you're just reading the story as a Jewish person, you're thinking, this is about to get nasty. Because he knows what just happened. He knows she made him unclean. He knows that she shouldn't be doing that, but he stops and he says, who touched me? And oh, yeah, there's a little commotion and, and, and finally she feels like she can't hide any longer. So she comes forward trembling and she says, I did. And then he uses the word daughter, a word in Greek that he only uses one time in the entire New Testament because it is the most tender word for daughter, anything that Jesus said. He said, my daughter. He gave her a a word, a compliment that he gave nobody else in scripture. And he says, you definitely got your healing from me because of the faith that you just displayed and thinking that I was compassionate enough to give it to you. In fact, what is most amazing to me is that, again, hear me charitably on this. It's almost like Jesus didn't even know what happened. It's like it was a reflex. It's like he wasn't even in control of it. And the point is he so overflows with compassion that when you touch him and ask him for something, he has so much grace, it just sort of flows out without him even controlling it. Or here's another story. Um, is the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus and says, hey, I need you to heal my daughter. She's besieged by a demon. And Jesus says what is probably the worst response you and I could imagine in his life. He says, woman, it's not right for me to take the bread for the children and give it to dogs. And all his disciples are like, oh, smack, did he just call her a dog? It wasn't a racial slur. And the woman seemed to understand that. She was the only one who understood it. It was a statement about her worthiness. That we, all of us, to God, are like dogs. And without batting an eye, she says, yes, but even the dogs in a rich man's house get to eat the crumbs that fall off of the table. And oh, translation, yeah, when it comes to worthiness, I understand that I'm a dog. But I also understand that you are so rich and overflowing in grace that it just kind of spills off your table. And there's enough in your house, even for dogs like me, if they just come and ask. When you get your heart around and understanding how much grace there is on Jesus' table. And when you quit coming trying to justify while what you're asking him, you're worthy of receiving it. And when you say, my only hope is your grace. But there's so much of it, I can just ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and I can ask exorbitantly. And it's a well that never runs dry. At that point, there is a power that begins to be released in mine and your ministries because it is a power that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to presume too much upon God's grace. There's just too much of it. So a couple questions I want to ask you on this before I go to our last one. Number one, do you approach God with that kind of sense about his tenderness? Charles Spurgeon, who was not a name it, claim it guy. He, they say that when he would pray for people, I read his biography recently, said that when he prayed for people, says, you know, somebody would come up with some kind of affliction and he wasn't some guy who felt like you just put you know, God in a box, like a genie in a bottle and if you say the right things, he's gonna give you the miracle. But he says that the way that he would pray for people was just, it had the, maybe the biggest impact of all because he would just say, God, this is your daughter and she's suffering. God, if my daughter was suffering, I know that I couldn't turn her away. How could you turn your daughter away? You're a better father than I am. Do you approach Jesus with that sense of his tenderness toward you that he really is that kind of father? You know, in John chapter 11, when, when, when Lazarus has died and they come to Jesus to tell him that, 
Jesus gives two reactions to the different sisters. To, to Martha, he gives a theological explanation of what he's doing that is greater than the tragedy. To Mary, it just says he stands there and he weeps. Theologians say that the two different responses are recorded intentionally to show us that Jesus feels both things when we go through a time of difficulty. And you do and I do as well when we don't know why Jesus didn't show up and raise the person from the dead or why he didn't answer the prayer we we wanted him to answer it. Is there is a theological answer that we need to wrestle with, but there's also a sense of that Jesus just weeps with us in our pain. Do you approach him with that sense that whatever it is that is causing you to weep, that Jesus literally, according to this story, weeps with you? He weeps with you because he loves you and because his pain, your pain has become his pain and because he cares about you the way that I would care about one of my children. Do you approach him with a sense of that tenderness? Here's the second question. What would your prayers for the people in your life look like if you really measured God's compassion for sinners by his cross and his power to save by the resurrection? At our church, we teach a concept called intercessory faith. Basically, it's the idea that the compassion of Jesus is limitless but throughout the New Testament, you see Jesus' power released only as people believe. Maybe the saddest verse to me in all the New Testament is Matthew 13, 58. Many mighty works Jesus did not in a particular city, not because he didn't care about him. In fact, it was his hometown. He would have had more reason to love people there than anywhere else he went in ministry. Many mighty works did he not in that region of Nazareth because of their unbelief. In other words, it had nothing to do with his sovereignty, not wanting to go in there and heal people. It had nothing to do with him not wanting to save. It had everything to do with the fact that there was nobody there to just stand in the gap and say, do it here. Do it here in my family. Is that going to be written over your family or over your school that you attend or over your city where he would say, there are many things I would have done in Las Vegas. There was just nobody there to believe that would actually do them. Our church is really involved in the, in the Muslim part of the, um, of the mission field over there. And it's the hardest place, and you guys know this, to reach people for Christ. And we'll go, and we have teams go out there, and they'll labor for months, sometimes years, and see little to no fruit. And what I always tell them is this right here. What's going to happen? What's, it's going to be like that proverbial webpecker that's pecking away at the telephone pole. You, you ever heard this? You know, so he's just pecking away at the telephone pole, not doing anything. All of a sudden, lightning strikes it. Thing splits open. And the woodpecker's like, and they kind of, then he goes and flies off and gets his friends and brings it back. back And it's like, there she is, boys. Look at what I did. I tell him, that's going to be us, our people in our church on the mission field. We're just tapping away and I feel like we're doing anything. When all of a sudden the lightning bolt of God's power descends from heaven. And we're just going to be able to stand there when it happens because we knew that it would come. We knew that he said it would come, and we just believed. And the greatest thing that we do there is believe. What if the primary role that God had given you in your family, your community, in this world was just to believe that he was as compassionate as he says he is? I love how John Newton said this, the writer of Amazing Grace, thou art coming to a king, so with thee large petitions bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Many of you have yet to see the outbreak of salvation in your family, your community. I just tell you, he's not done. He's not done. The Lord's arm is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy that it cannot hear. It is mine and your unbelief that separates us from his power. We still live in a world where there's 6,400 unreached people groups. 
We live in a country now that seems to be going as fast the other direction as possible. You cannot convince me that the greatest acts of God's power are something that we will talk about in the past. It is not in the days of John Newton. It is not in the days of George Whitfield or Martin Luther or even the days of Peter and Paul that the greatest acts of God are going to come. They are in our day and in the future. Amen. They have to be. Here's number four. Lastly, we pray trustingly. We pray trustingly. Luke 11, verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Again, if your kid asks for a chicken nugget, you're not going to give him a scorpion, right? But let's reverse that. <laughs> Parents, if your child asks for a scorpion, are you going to give him a scorpion? No. You're going to withhold the scorpion because you love them. As a parent, sometimes you tell your kids no, not in spite of the fact that you love them, but because you love them. You see, God is no different. One of the great ironies is that sometimes what looks to us like bread is a scorpion. And what looks to us like a scorpion is actually bread. Think of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ looked like the worst possible scorpion that God could give to an innocent man, Jesus, and the disciples, yet it turned out to be the greatest and best thing that God ever gave to the earth. What if some of the worst things in your life turned out to be God's greatest gifts? That write this down. Sometimes God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. Sometimes God answers our prayers by giving us what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. No good thing does he withhold, Psalm 84 says. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So when he says no, as sometimes he does, you have to trust him. The one thing that you should never doubt, never, is the goodness of God to you. You see, the one who taught us these things about prayer is the one who would, in just a, a few months after teaching these things, offer up his own flesh to save us from our sin. John Owen said, in light of the cross, the greatest possible insult that you could give to Jesus Christ is to doubt his love for you. That is the one thing you can never and you must never doubt in any situation. So you see, at the end of the day, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that teaches us to pray. Because it shows you how desperate you and I are for the mercy of God. It shows us how willing God is to give it. And when you understand the gospel and the character of Jesus, prayer becomes less a self-discipline and more an involuntary reflex. In fact, the Apostle Paul would, in a very subtle way, compare it to breathing. Breathing. I'm looking at you right now. There's nobody in this room, not a single person that has to breathe out of self-discipline. Nobody in here got up this morning and said, to do, breathe. <laughs> nobody has an accountability partner. Nobody's small group is calling them saying, hey, bro, do you remember to breathe today? Just seriously, in, out, in, out. Just do it a bunch of times. Nobody does that. Why? Because your body craves air. You don't need to be self-disciplined to breathe because your body craves air when the gospel has really created in you an understanding of who you are and who God is, prayer will become more an involuntary reflex and less a self-discipline. The command to pray without ceasing will be less a command and more a description. Because people who have been humbled by the gospel, people who have seen the glory of Jesus, they pray instinctively. They don't need to be commanded to it. They don't need to wait for the yearly series to do it. They don't need to, be, to wait for the emphasis. They don't need to put it on a list. They just pray in and out because they recognize that Jesus is compassionate, that they are desperate, that he is willing, and so they pray. Let me close with the words of William Carey. Here's what William Carey said when he, he was a missionary to, that went over to, um, to India. And he was the father of the modern missions movement. He said, when I first left England, my hope of the conversion of, the, uh, uh, of people who were outside of Christ was very strong. 
But after so many obstacles, I felt like it would just die away. The superstitions of these people were a million times more deep-rooted. And the corrupt examples of so-called European Christians were a million times worse than if they'd abandoned and persecuted me. I was ready to give up. Here's a statement. This is the end. Well, I have God and his word is sure. My hope fixed upon that sure word will rise superior to all obstructions and triumph over all trials. God's cause will triumph. It will triumph with you. It will triumph with you if you pray persistently, desperately, boldly, and trustingly.